Well, as Brian said, for those of you who are new, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here, and I am uh, so glad that you come to worship with us today. Uh, I do delight in this tradition of the kids leading us in the lighting of Advent candles, this Advent wreath. Um, especially helpful this year because, I don't know about you, but my body is still processing Thanksgiving, if you know what I mean. And uh, a physical reminder that we are in another season, the season of Advent, the weeks that lead us into a most meaningful celebration of Christmas. Oftentimes, the lighting of this first candle uh, is given the theme of hope, so that's what we're talking about today. And if you were uh, tuned in to the first section of the prayer that the kids led us into, we said words that were a cry to the living God for a reigniting of our hope in a world that is trapped in cycles of violence and suffering. And you don't have to spend all that much time in the news or walking through our city to get connected with the reality of that cycle of violence and suffering. What would it look like for God to answer our prayer? our communal cry, God, come now as hope, that we might be a people of hope. Let me say a few words about hope that aren't terribly novel. They're intuitive to you, but I think uh, worth saying. You know, hope is crucial to every arena of human flourishing. That's true uh, in sports. It's true in work. It's true in your relational world. It's true in the spiritual life. Hope is like rocket fuel that lifts us against the force of gravity that sometimes feels so grave. Things pulling us down. Hope is like rocket fuel. And hope, to a great degree, I would say, is a measure of our character. It's an expression of conviction, of fortitude. I'm reading uh, a book called uh, The Impossible Will Take a While, and it's just historic stories of hope. And there are all these chapters about hope telling us about how it is that a new world can come into being if there are people who are sustained by hope. One of those chapters I read uh, it was a rereading of the life of Nelson Mandela, you know, the leader in South Africa. Uh, he was in prison for almost three decades. Can you imagine that? Being treated like a piece of dirt for more than 20 years and not losing hope. Not losing hope that a new world could come into being. They're still waiting for that new world in South Africa, but one chapter of it came into being through a man's life who maintained a sense of conviction and of fortitude to not give up, to keep going. But not that hard to imagine Nelson Mandela's life before you realize hope is really hard to sustain. Life is not as easy as we would like it to be. The... Uh, Famous author of the last uh, century, Mark Twain, said famously, most men die at age 27. We just don't bury them until later. 
Yeah. Most men die early in life. We just don't bury them till later. What's he saying? He's saying it's easy to have a heart that beats and a body that works, but to have a soul that's been eviscerated of hope. That is no life, Mark Twain says. So here we are in a challenging season and in a challenging world. I wonder if you could tune in to the reservoir of your hope. In what aspects of life is your hope overflowing? It's flourishing. In what places of life is your hope have a sense of fullness? of overflow. And is it possible there are places of your life in which your hope is flagging, in which the reservoir feels low? It has been my prayer in preparation for this time and for this season that God would speak to us, not just about the generalities of hope, but about some specific place of hope in our hearts that might be hard for us to look at but that God might want to do a new thing in. The good news from a Christian perspective is that even though it's daunting to look at the emptiness of our hearts, that we can have courage to do so because there are sources in the Christian history that have the capacity to reignite hope. And in the ancient world, the Hebrew prophets were masters at this capacity, at putting their finger on where it is that hope is lacking and at leading us to places where hope could be restored. So in the month of December, we're going to do uh, a brief meditation each Sunday morning on some of the prophetic promises of a man named Isaiah in the Old Testament. Let me say a few words about him. Uh, he began to write in the 8th century before Christ, so in the 700s, that is a really long time, even before Christ came. This would have been in ancient Israel, a season of economic and military strength, which was good news for a very small percentage of people in Israel. Good news for the privileged class, the good news for people who had enough power to send other people to war. It was good news for those people and not really all that good of news for the average soul, which would have been the great majority. In Isaiah chapter 1, God's light shines upon the nation of Israel. And Isaiah uncovers what it is that God sees, corrupt leaders, a culture of people who increasingly lack compassion for widows and orphans. And Isaiah says, this should not be. In verse 21 of Isaiah uh, chapter 1, uh, in uh, biting words, the prophet says that the faithful city, Jerusalem, the city that was supposed to be set on a hill as a light to the nations, that city has become a whore unfaithful and unclean. It would have been an incredibly difficult situation for anyone to maintain any sort of hope in. And into a void of hopelessness, 
the prophet speaks vision. This is what he said. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest mountain. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, in this world that was going to hell in a handbasket, Isaiah speaks to the hearts of the people and calls them to believe for a world that is unimaginable and a world that is still unimaginable today. He foretells the uniting of nations, an end to the us versus them that has gone on from the beginning of time and still goes on today, stretching human hearts that all peoples might walk a common journey together. He foretells the transformation of our most visceral energies, this beautiful poetic language about swords being beaten into plowshares. For all of us suburban people, those are like farming tools, you know. He's talking about the possibility that our energy, that our spirit, that our preoccupations might one day turn away from self-protection, from violence, from aggression, from the extinguishing of the other. And that all that intelligence, all that imagination might be applied to the task of nurturing the world, of feeding the other. That's a pretty astounding vision, isn't it? And then he gives this stirring call at the end calling God's people to embark upon a journey. Come, he says at the end in verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now this, I think, is an important point to take notice of. Those of us formed uh, in the American environment, we are so eager to make a difference. We want a strategic plan we want to be able to measure our difference. We want to go to work. Those energies can be really helpful in the midst of a world that is falling apart. But that's not step one in this vision. Step one is to embark upon a journey. Step one is to let God lead us out of darkness and in a journey towards the light, the wisdom, the judgment of God. We see in Advent, 
embodied in a manger, we have to acknowledge the ways in which we are affected by darkness. Ways in which we are entangled in darkness. Otherwise, we can never fulfill the ultimate vocation that God has for us. Dr. King said it beautifully last century. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. It's possible for us to want a better world, to think we have a picture in mind for a better world, and yet Dr. King is telling us that if we are animated by the antagonisms of the world, by the hatred of the world, by the anger of the world, by the aggression of the world, we will be a part of multiplying hatred in the world. So the beginning of Advent is first and foremost a call to begin a journey, to come out of darkness for you and me and for us to be a people who increasingly walk in the light of the Lord. That's what Isaiah's vision does for us. It inspires us, it awakens us. And if it is to do its job, it must activate us towards our own journey. Now, Isaiah's vision is soaring prose, language that's about 30,000 feet. It's way up there. But we might ask, what does it mean for an individual human being to begin that journey? What does it mean for an individual human being to make space in our hearts for the promises of God? Number one, it would be to get your car and turn off the alarm. <laughs> Are you having trouble focusing? I'm having trouble focusing. But I don't think I can wait until it stops, so I'm just going to keep going. Isaiah's talking about big ideas, big hopes and dreams. What does it look like for an individual person to begin the journey that Isaiah calls God's people upon. Well, early in the Advent story in the New Testament, there is an example that I think is helpful to us. We meet a man named Zechariah. He would become Jesus' uncle, a holy man of the priestly class, faithful to God. If you are a reader of the New Testament, you might be familiar with the story that even though Zechariah is a man who's walked in faithfulness to God, both he and his wife Elizabeth. He is also someone carrying deep disappointment in his heart. His wife Elizabeth was barren. They weren't able to have children together. Maybe you know somebody that's endured that pain. In the ancient world, that pain was worse. People might assume that barrenness would be a curse from God. Maybe you did something wrong. We feel like that sometimes, don't we? That when life is unfolding in a way that's painful, we wonder, did I do something wrong? Is God's curse upon me? But beyond that, it was just a profound sense of vulnerability. You know, in the ancient world, children were a form of social security. You know, <laughs> there weren't a lot of old folks' homes in the ancient world. 
So to have children was a way to see that you were taken care of in old age. Not the only reason, but a reason. Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in pain and in vulnerability. An angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah. Zechariah is in the temple. This angel Gabriel reveals the presence of God to Zechariah, assuring him that his years and years and years in prayer have indeed been heard, and that even though Elizabeth is past her childbearing years, she will have a son, and she will not just have any son, but she will have a son who will be a great prophet. He will be somebody who makes a difference in this world. This is good news. God has heard your prayers. Your life, your family's life will be remembered. You will have a great purpose. But it seems that Zechariah's heart is too bruised to receive this promise. In Luke 1.18, Zechariah responds to the angel's assurance saying, how can I be sure? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He's a man who's endured the pain of unanswered prayers. And if you have been a follower of Christ for any number of years, my assumption is that you also have endured the pain of unanswered prayer. We see in this story the reality that the difficulty, the questions that arise, the faith crisis that ensues from our unanswered prayer forms a kind of scar tissue over the human heart, a toughness, a resistance to the fresh promise, the assurance of God. So this is exposed here, Zechariah's pain. The angel interacts with him in verse 19, saying, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you of this good news. That seems nice, doesn't it? angel going to reassure him. But then the story turns strange, at least to my reading. Verse 20, the angel says, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Poor old Zechariah, his wounded heart being dragged out into the open his resistance to the promise of God. He can't go there with God yet. The angel speaks a word of reassurance to him and then says, you're not going to speak for nine months because you have not believed. I don't know about you, but I find that a little bit troubling. It seems not especially kind. Is God offended at Zechariah's resistance to the journey of faith. And if God is offended by Zechariah's resistance to faith, is God offended at my resistance to faith? The wisdom of the saints for generations and generations give us helpful news, assuring words, that God is not punishing Zechariah here, but leading him on a journey that heals his hope, ultimately. The saints throughout the ages have encouraged us 
with a word that God is not punishing Zechariah, but he's leading him into a silent space that functions as a sort of learning space. It is a space in which Zechariah will wrestle with his own inner darkness. We think about how isolating it must have been for Zechariah to not be able to speak for nine months. It's like, I don't know if I want to be sitting at the dinner table. <laughs> you know, I think I might just go to my own room. I can't participate in the conversation. And I imagine in these long months, in the silence, the spiritual container of this silent space, Zechariah would have naturally become aware with the deep inner scripts. You know what I mean when I say that? Like the, the stories that he would tell in his mind about his life and how faithful he'd been and where was God when all of this pain was happening to him. You know, we can never be free from the scripts that imprison our lives until we become aware with them of them and until we sit with them i'm a middle child nobody sees me i will never get promoted nobody hears my voice no one recognizes how hard i've been working i'm going to be great i'm going to do something that nobody else in the world can do all of the stories that go on in our minds that drive our life forward and oftentimes drive our lives into the rocks. These stories can imprison us. And in the space of silence, there is a capacity to corral them, to name them, to confront them. And then, if one is a follower of Christ, to be set free from them. I think of the story here about the Dutch priest Henry Nouwen. We talk about him quite a bit around here, the last century, how it is that he'd reached the zenith of his career, an Ivy League professor, a well-known Christian author, and how it is that even though he'd reached the zenith of his career, what most of us would have considered like, that's success now, you can rest. He records of his life that on the one hand, he was on top of the world, and on the other hand, he could recognize what no one else could see, that something inside of him was dying, that there was darkness that was consuming his heart. And so he had a sense that God was calling him to a long season of silence, not Zechariah's literal silence, but the figurative silence of turning away from the applause of men, turning away from gaining his sense of being from the applause of other people and giving his life to the least of these. So he moved into large, a residential home for mentally uh, disabled adults where uh, counselors would live amongst uh, folks in need, not as... Um, professionals, but as brothers and sisters, as friends. In that space, Henry Nouwen says, his life was saved. He was set free from voices 
and from forces that contorted his soul and made him small. And living in this small, silent space was let out into the broad field of God's grace. Maybe you recognize a similar kind of darkness in your own being. Darkness is an awfully intimidating word. So maybe it's just like something's out of alignment, something out of order in your own heart, something that feels amiss from the direction, the trajectory of God's work in the world. Maybe that could feel to you like a plateau in the spiritual life, boredom with prayer, diminished hope in God. Maybe it feels like flagging affections in friendships, a diminished hope for the kinds of connections that you think would satisfy your soul but are so hard to cultivate and maintain in Silicon Valley. Or maybe it's a lost sense of vocation. It's possible to be materially and professionally successful in Silicon Valley, but to have a diminished sense of hope that there is a God-given purpose for your life. These are the kinds of things that I think Nowen might have been talking about with respect to the darkness that was consuming his heart, living a life that really is no life. Those are incredibly intimidating things for us to look at. But again, I say we can because of God's goodness, because of God's promise to meet us in darkness and to raise us to new life. Advent, if it is to be anything meaningful for us, is a season of welcoming the light of Christ into the dark chambers of our hearts, the dark voices that distort and imprison. And we can do that with hope in our hearts because the testimony of Brother Henry Nowen and of St. Zechariah is that if we carve out space, if we silence ourselves, if we sit with our thoughts, if we face our darkness, we will find that God is already there. That we do not need to cry out for him to come. He is there. Martin Laird, the professor at Villanova University and a Catholic priest, he said these words. He said, God in Christ has taken into himself the brokenness of the human condition, all our darkness. Hence, human woundedness, brokenness, and death itself are transformed from dead ends to doorways into life. In the divinizing humanity of Christ, bruises become balm, a place of healing. And then he ends saying that the doorway into the silent land, which is his metaphor for the presence of God, the doorway into the silent land is a womb. In Advent, we enter into the presence of God by acknowledging the ways through which we are in touch with darkness. So I want to give you some time to begin to do that alone. Sometimes uh, we have a little bit of time to chat with one another. Since we're talking about exploring deep things in our hearts, today we just handed out paper, and uh, I would invite you to take a few minutes to journal for a while. You can take time just to explore. What are the longings of your heart? 
just list them without judgment. What are the things that are energizing you and driving you? And is there one of those longings that has been bruised or broken or out of alignment? You could just let your mind ramble there. What has happened for you? What has happened to you along the way in the journey? And in the midst of whatever darkness you are in touch with, what do you want to say to God? What is his whisper to you? Let me pray for us. We have some minutes to journal, and then Kevin will lead us in worship. Holy Spirit, come upon your people today. Some of us find Zechariah's story intimidating. So pour out grace upon tender hearts to lead us to spaces that are in pain that you want to heal. Bless us today as we pour out our hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name.